Hello, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So today I'm talking to Matt Welch. He is the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, fifth columnist, and for the purposes of this particular podcast episode, a father who is trying to do what pretty much every single parent in the United States is trying to do right now, which is figure out what the hell exactly are we doing with our kids for this school year? So hi, Matt. Welcome. Hi, Jen. How you doing? Good. So you actually wrote a piece about this for reason about your particular journey of trying to figure out exactly what you are supposed to be doing with your children and what what the, the risks are for children and various children of various ages, seeing as you have more than one child, and trying to figure out what do I send them to school? What do I do with them? What what are we supposed to be doing? So kind of kind of give us a bit of background on that. Yeah. So uh, I have a five-year-old and a 12-year-old, an incoming kindergartner and an incoming seventh grader, so second year of middle school. And we're here in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, which, you know, New York was the epicenter of the pandemic, uh, just wiped out a, a horrendous number of people here. And in the early days of March and such, um, New York was actually later than most big cities to close its school district. We yanked our kids out of uh, school out of fear of um because, you know, this is March. We didn't know. People were still, like, wiping down their groceries in March uh, and stuff like that. Maybe they're still doing it in places, but they're not doing it here anymore. But back then, we didn't know. And, like, uh, it seemed to be growing uh, faster than we knew. We didn't understand stuff. It stood to reason that a respiratory disease um, uh, would uh, uh, is easily uh, transmitted by kids. That's how they almost always work. Um, so uh, we pulled our kids out of school on the Friday uh, I think it was March 14th before finally uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio here on the Monday ordered schools to be shut down. He's very reluctant to do it because he had and has a uh, kind of ideological predisposition towards seeing schools as a delivery, a food delivery uh, uh, system for poor families. Uh, and also, he's uh, well in with the teachers unions and and so on. Well, that was March. Uh, things have changed since more. We've learned a lot more. And one of the weird things that we have learned uh, is, A, what it's like to actually go through an entire three-month school season, three-and-a-half-month school season, uh, fully uh, remote, uh, especially with a five-year-old. Um, and that's not good. <laughs> it's, super, <laughs> it's super not good uh, for anybody to do that, I, I don't think, as, especially uh, – you know, if for those of you who don't have kids, depending on uh, mostly gender, probably, uh, but also just like how, uh, how decent the, the that the uh, the tweens and teenagers are, they can be self-sufficient after a certain age and they kind of manage their own workflow. And you don't you don't have to pay a lot of attention to them. Uh, five year olds, they like the their monkeys. They need to go out and, and exchange lice with people and just sort of like be social creatures. So it's really hard on our family and everybody's family. And, you know, we're luckier than 99% of the people out there. So, um, but more importantly, in terms of decision-making process, isn't necessarily our individual situations. It's that we started getting some information in from South Korea, from China, from Europe, um, Iceland. Uh, and it showed this very surprising finding, which is that kids don't get this. 
They just don't really get this too much. And when they do, they don't get sick. Uh, and they rarely transmit it and especially rarely transmit it to adults. Um, this is counterintuitive and the counterness of that intuition or whatever um, still confounds. You could see evidence of that confoundment every single day in newspapers. And yet that is what uh, the overwhelming, if, you know, uh, preliminary evidence has shown. And so as soon as we could, uh, because, the, you know, the schools were closed and also daycares were closed and, and there weren't any rules that were given until the very end of, of June. The city and state finally said, OK, you can open your daycares if you do it at X and Y. And we've sent our five year old uh, to uh, day camp type things um, since the beginning of July. And boy, that that improved everybody's lives <laughs> so measurably. I can't even begin to tell you. And also, like, no one got sick. No one's, you know, uh, the the testing rate here in New York uh, City is around one percent. It's been around there for a long time. That's super low, right? The um, the people who talk about and look at the science of reopening schools uh, around the world um, usually are asking for a community spread, which is best reflected by the testing rate, a positive test rate of uh, under 5%. We're under one or we're around, around one. Um, and so, but then uh, some of the science differs, and we'll get in that in a bit, uh, in terms of how much do the teens and tweens catch it? How much do they transmit it? Um, so there's different uh, things associated with that. But it just, it's shocking to me, um, or startling maybe is a better word, um, to in trying to figure this out and trying to see how this will be translated into policy in New York. And New York is one of only th three of, 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 the, of the biggest 20 cities in the country that are contemplating at least a partial reopen. It's going to be about half reopen uh, public schools. Um, and there's a whole lot of, I mean, just day to every single day, huge amounts of discussion and argument about this all over the New York Times and elsewhere. Um, so as you try to like figure out what to do and what we're going to do with a half time when our five-year-old is not in school, uh, 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 it is uh, really irritating to see the level of reporting, which consistently and this week in particular has been like, well, kids get it just as much. They spread it just as much. Um, uh, that ain't so, um, uh, it's, it's hor it, it, you know, when I tell people that only 76 people under the age of 18 or 18 and under have died from coronavirus, they don't believe me. Um, and yet uh, that's true. And I, I wish that we would base policy more on that and the actual real existing studies of it. But um, our journalist friends are, generally speaking, not making that very um, helpful or not being helpful about that. And this is a situation where and I mean, this is something that I've been complaining about for ages, but the the kind of the incentives for the media market right now for journalism is to kind of find things to fit your narrative. And I personally, I tend to stay away from actually reporting on like COVID numbers and stuff like that, just because I look at all this, I'm like, dude, fuck if I know, like I, you can find any data point anywhere to fit your particular narrative. And so everybody is kind of gone in that direction, which is annoying under normal circumstances. But now we're getting to a point where we have to start making policy decisions. Parents have to start making decisions for their children. And so now we're moving from a place where this is just merely annoying to quasi dangerous, because of course, the people making policies are getting the same information that we're getting from the same places. They're not really getting any better information than we are. And so now we're at this point where you're, you're getting this kind of weird 
spun information and now there's going to be actual policy made on this information. Uh, I would add another uh, layer of kind of meta that, that impacts this. And there's a piece today by an education reporter at the New York Times whose work I do not like uh, named Eliza Shapiro, but she always reflects the prevailing view among uh, kind of both either teachers unions or um, uh, uh, kind of equity uh, activists. And you and I have talked about that in the past. Uh, anyway, she had a piece today uh, basically laying out the ways in which uh, President Trump's uh, mostly rhetorical involvement in this question has made it easier or has led to um, educators, teachers around the, the country, union or otherwise, um, to be against school openings because bad man likes it. So um, that makes it easier. It gives us more politics. And I was going to write something up today. I don't have time, but um, we have to recognize in all policy debates, but particularly this one uh, right now, just because it's so pressing and affects you know, it's like 57 million uh, school age kids in this country. It's kind of a lot, a lot of families we're talking about here uh, who are, are, you know, going to have to relive the hell that they had this spring. Um, but there are people who uh, have material incentive to deepen, not end political conflict and policy conflict. Um, it is helpful for teachers unions who right now um, in many parts of the country um, are advocating you know, we want to shut down the schools, uh, but also, um, you know, maybe uh, cut down the amount of responsibilities to do remote learning. Basically want to keep getting paid without necessarily doing the work. Uh, and they also want to protect especially their older um, uh, members. You know, my brother is six years older than I am and he's a public school teacher in California. I don't necessarily want to see him infected. Uh, it just depends on how he acts in the next couple of weeks. But like uh, uh, so but it like it aligns with their incentives if they want to um, uh, err on the side of keeping things remote to have the president clowning around making a big issue of it. And the president might himself think that it aligns with his interest to make a big politics out of this because it's going to get his mythical suburban housewife who, <laughs> who he imagines is the, the racist wine mom who uh, uh, doesn't want uh, any poor folk in, in their, uh, in their area. But um, so uh, that is really unhelpful uh, because they actually are incentivized in that way and, and less so to actually solve the problem. But it's a gamble that the teachers unions are playing right now. Um, and you can see sometimes they receive the latest Trump nonsense with a certain amount of glee for precisely that reason, because it gives them cover. Um, it's going to be hard. Uh, I'll walk you through a little bit of of the market in New York for um uh, parents or and, and school, poly the kinds of people who are being affected and the kind of choices that they're making. A lot of this is anecdotal, but uh, or, you know, it's I think it's there. So who comes to New York and who sends their kids to public schools? Um, as of 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and you and I have talked about this before, I think um, if you were uh, of kind of upper middle class, professional class, um, by definition, a New York liberal, that doesn't really matter in this case. Um, you would kind of think twice about sending your kid to public schools because they kind of sucked. Um, and back then, I think 67% of school-aged uh, kids used the public school system in New York, which is one of the lower rates in the country. Michael Bloomberg, uh, who I am not a fan of in any other context that I can think of, uh, 
besides those terminals, which are really great. Uh, he opened up a lot of education reform, allowed for charters. He's big, a champion of charter. And so in New York now, um, 10% of the public school system is administered by uh, charter uh, things. That's been capped and de Blasio's uh, campaigns against it. And they're all very evil and wrong. But anyways, um, so the number went from 67% to 75% in about 10 years. That's a pretty huge increase. So people sort of piling in. Well, okay. So who is doing what now and why? Um, and so we, for example, are of the cohort and we know quite a few of these people who uh, are doing well. We're part of the, we're part of the problem. We're to the gentry liberals who are part of the problem, even though we're not exactly liberals, um, but professional class and not uh, overly suffering from this. But we moved to New York for professional reasons. Our uh, family is 3,000 miles away in each direction. We don't have a lot of options here. And we know a lot of people in our neighborhood because uh, we uh, cluster around this uh, school, a public school that has a dual uh, French language program. We know probably a dozen people who are like, screw it, going to France or going to fill in the blank country that I have access to. Um, we are not making that decision. But for people who don't have family, um, they have a, and who are in the public school system, they like really want to uh, have the schools open, particularly because of the science showing that it's a lot safer than most people expect. And everything should be bracketed on that. New York is pretty safe right now. The science says kids don't really get this right now. So it's not like people are rolling the dice of their kids. Um, uh, but who's not going uh, back? Uh, who doesn't want to, who wants to uh, stay learning remote? A lot of the um, uh, immigrant families here, uh, Chinese uh, parents who live uh, uh, in our district, a, a little while away in a, in a poor neighborhood called Sunset Park, they're not so interested in sending their kids back because grandma can take care of the kid. They got grandma around, you know, they've got a multi-generational families around. And that also makes them more vulnerable too, right? Because if the kids uh, get the disease and they're asymptomatic, but then they come home, grandma's there. So like you have a different set of things, but the fact that there's people like me, um, uh, makes it so that, uh, thankfully the New York times, which is the great place where, uh, you know, uh, successful progressives, uh, have, uh, sort of anguished conversations about guilt over their own consumer choices every day. That's what it's about. Um, uh, you also have quite a few people, Michelle Goldberg, who's a, a columnist who lives in my neighborhood and, and I'm friendly with, uh, she's like, you, we got to open the schools. This is a disaster. This is terrible for the kids. Uh, she's a parent, a local parent. Um, uh, really terrible for the kids. And then I can't work. Uh, so there's a lot of people in that boat too. And so the tension is really interesting because de Blasio, who's terrible, um, uh, and who's been slow now on the reopen side, uh, but he's been presented with the teachers unions, including the, all the principals in our district. Uh, this happened a day or two ago saying, ah, we think we should be hundred percent remote now. Um, he's saying, no, nope, get back to work. We're going to figure it out. We'll get a nurse in each place. We, we know it's going to be hard. We're going to figure it out. Sadly, um, depending on Bill de Blasio to figure it out or depending and on any New York politician to figure it out is uh, a, a disaster waiting to happen. And so even though I'm an advocate for opening up especially elementary schools, um, both for scientific reasons and for like kids need to go be kids reasons, um, uh, my biggest worry going forward, even beyond the bad journalism and the bad policy discussion and everything else, um, is testing. What happens when someone tests positive, but that test comes back 
eight days from now. Um, that's an absolute huge cock up on the part of the federal government principally, but also state and local isn't helping either. So, um, yeah, we're we're facing a huge level of uncertainty. And I think the politicians are also aware that, um, you know, New York could be losing, I don't know, 500,000 people. I'm talking about the city. Like, we don't know. It's going to be a staggeringly high number of people who are just going to skedaddle. That's changing the, uh, the, the, the very nature of New York City. And schools are fundamentally a part of that. And we're seeing um, uh, different microcosms of that play out around the country. And, uh, and I think that our brains are kind of too small to process the enormity of that potential change. Yeah, I saw an article yesterday that in Manhattan particularly, um, yeah, there's a lot of apartments for rent right now, like a lot of apartments for rent. And I'm like, I want to buy that dip so bad and I can't. But <laughs> but another thing, that, especially involving like elementary school kids, and I'm not, I don't typically love it when people make this argument, but I mean, this is what it is. And this is part of the conversation is that that is not only the group of kids that seems to be the most immune to COVID for reasons that I would like somebody to investigate because it's not exactly like elementary school kids are known for their like hygiene and cleanliness. So how, how are they skating and the rest of us are having to worry about it? But it's also the group of students that requires constant adult supervision. And while you and your wife could theoretically arrange your lives in such a way that one of you could be at home all day with your five-year-old, most parents can't do that. So that does play into it that you need to have some place to put your child during the day if you are expected to go back to work. And that's not a situation that a lot of people had to deal with back in the spring because everything was locked down, nobody was going to work, so you just kind of made it work that way. But now people have to go back to work and now it's like, well, what... Where am I supposed to put my kid all day if they don't go to school? Well, one of the answers, the one of the initial answers given here by de Blasio, and this is before they announced what they were going to do with with the public schools, is that, well, still not sure about schools, but we're going to uh, have the city provide uh, daycare for like 100,000 kids who are school age kids because they're going to need someone to look after them. Um, so we're going to use whatever unused city facilities and people like, are you? Are, are you going to use the schools? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, we might use some school facilities. They're literally doing this in, in uh, uh, California, in Los Angeles. They are uh, schools are closed for the fall um, and schools are also going to be open in the fall for uh, city and state run daycare. Some of it being run by the schools. It's crazy. It is just it's absolutely crazy. It's uh, reminds me a little bit of the politics of it. Remind me a little bit of kind of. Uh, an, uh, an adjunct part of the politics of the Black Lives Matter protests, which is anyone who has dealt with a funeral or a loved one or like not being able to see someone who meant a lot to them in a medical setting. Maybe they're dying. Maybe they're just going through something because of an abundance of caution and the other things involved with uh, coronavirus to then now see, um, you know, 35,000 people smashed together in Brooklyn at a black trans Lives Matter protest might get a little bit irritated by such things. Uh, I think you will also see people I, when that ha when the uh, that de Blasio announcement happened about, yeah, we'll open daycares at schools, but not schools. Uh, people were like, oh, no, 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 you're not doing that. So um, I, the and this is why I say the teachers unions are kind of playing with fire because. Don't underestimate 
how angry, first of all, how angry we all are right now anyways. I mean, everybody in this country is more irritable. There's the, I haven't looked at the study, so I don't know if it's garbage, but I mean, there's the thing from uh, the CDC this week saying like 11% of adults contemplated suicide this past month. It's like, that's a, we're not in a really good place right now. And uh, certainly kids um, are not in a really good place. If you make us do this again in the fall, and let's be clear, that's the norm. That's 17 out of the 20 biggest cities in the in the uh, in the country are doing that, at least with schools and all these tens of millions of people. That's going to be so many angry people, so many like uh, cabin fever, shining marriages. Uh, It's not going to be pretty. And that anger is going to be expressed in some way politically. And um, I think teachers unions got to be super careful not to uh, get out over their skis, which they uh, have been doing in, you know, places like California saying, oh, we need to uh, as part of, you know, the minimum, we need to get back to work. You have to ban charter schools. And it's like, but that that doesn't make there's no nope that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, So um, I think that they're playing with fire because parents are going to be pissed off, really, really pissed off. It's all that people talk about. I don't even and again, it's why I wrote my piece this week that was ended up being mostly a frustration at media, but uh, while also being an attempt to discover numbers and context that you would hope that people who are more specialized in this than I would uh, would tap into when they're making some journalistic presentations uh, of it. But uh, it's it's so frustrating to you know be. I mean, I I don't watch normal news because I only want news that affects. Uh, that it's literally news that you can use that affects these decisions and arguments because it's very difficult. We have to decide, you know, we're going to have to organize pods uh, uh, probably for our five-year-old where we'll get some other uh, parents from her uh, classroom and, and, you know, uh, parents will switch, you know, take one day a week to teach them or look after them in some way. Um, but like there's, you just, you want to keep track of all the science, which changes on a day-to-day basis. Um, and you want to do it in, in a, in a smart way and, and not like suddenly be, uh, uh risking, uh, uh, the health of people. And then you'll see some jackass story on the wires. Like kids are 10 times as likely to spread coronavirus. It's like, no dude, learn how to read a, a science paper. It's not hard. Um, so it's it's frustrating because uh, people are using the same kind of cherry picking of data, the same uh, uh, illiteracy, uh, scientific illiteracy. And they're doing it about something that matters so much that it's literally life and death all around them. It's only thing that matters. And they're being just as irresponsible and headline chasing as as ever. Uh, and it makes me mad. Yeah, and especially on the headline chasing thing. I mean, like I said, I've. I've gone on plenty about the weird media incentives right now, but this is also a situation where a lot of people are being asked to report on a thing that's really, really out of their depth because most people are not scientists. They don't know, they they don't know how to read these studies. They just know that you read like the summary and then it's like, okay, well then that's it. And then you never drill down and then you write the article. And then of course, nobody ever reads the piece anymore. Everyone just reads the headline and then that's what becomes the news. And it's like, can can you not do this right now, please? Can we stop with, I mean, misinformation? I mean, okay, I I can kind of understand it. I don't forgive it, but like, okay, you're you're being assigned a story. You're meant to look at this graph, and you're like, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at. But what's really annoying to me is, 
just how partisan and how tribal this whole situation has gotten, and especially the reporting on it. And I kind of hoped that at least by now, I mean, we're on month five now, that maybe things would have gotten a tiny bit better, or at least a couple of solid sources would have emerged for just like, just data. Like, okay, here you go. Here is the data, but it's not gotten better. It's gotten worse and it's continually getting worse and it will continue to get worse right up until November, which is when, again, a lot of people are still having to make these decisions. I know DC at this point is pushed back till November 6th when they're going to go back to school. Allegedly. <laughs> date. Uh, yeah, uh, allegedly. That may change too, but it's just the the reporting on this just deeply annoys me and bothers me because it's it, it's graphing this really stupid tribalism culture war nonsense onto something that, like you said, it's life and death. Like, you know, we really need to have a serious grasp of what we're looking at here so we can start making decisions. I mean, there's a argument um, made in journalism, navel gazing circles, and it's, it's ongoing, but uh, put most... Uh, succinctly and popularly by uh, Wes Lowry, formerly of the Washington Post. And he wrote uh, in the middle of the of the crazy couple of months there where there are you know, journalists getting fired every day for having worn a bad costume at a Halloween party 10 years ago or whatever. That was um, so ridiculous. He uh, wrote that, you know, we need to get uh, away from this phony baloney sense of objectivity and reorient our uh, our kind of motivation or our way of doing things uh, in into moral clarity, and uh, and I wrote at length. Don't need to belabor it, but uh, one quick way of thinking about that is um, or responding to it is that is there not a moral clarity in like trying to find the best information in a good faith way? Isn't actually that the moral clarity more than like? I am going to use the tartiest adjective to describe what a poopy head Donald Trump was when he sat next to Betsy DeVos and said whatever nonsense he did from the White House lawn yesterday, which he did. I'm, I do not doubt that there is a bunch of garbage in there. Um, uh, but that's what people are using their moral clarity for towards, um, you know, pointing a finger directly in that direction, um, not to get to a place that is actually more I, I actually view it in, in sense of morality, like honesty is a, a moral good. Uh, knowledge is a moral good. I mean, I see. Yes. I mean, I have a, a an ideological point of view and a political point of view. It's weird. It's idiosyncratic. Um, but I wake up in the morning not thinking like I'm going to convert people into my religion. Uh, I wake up in the morning as someone like I if I can contribute just a slight net gain among the knowledge uh, or even way of thinking of people, um, if I can sort of like even uh, suggest an architecture for trying to address and understand a problem that people find useful and then they come to an absolutely opposite conclusion for me, great, I have succeeded, I've done something good. That to me is morality. That's journalistic morality at its, at its finest. Um, uh, instead, people are having this kind of other view. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, when you, I don't even uh, turn on cable news at all anymore, even for a fleeting moment, because I know what it's going to be. It's going to be a host just shaking their damn head, 
tut-tutting with a guest who more or less agrees with them uh, at the latest clip uh, from the White House or the latest bit of, of news coming, uh, especially when it's more of a comment than a directive. So Trump says something crazy about Fauci or a Trump underling says something hyperbolic about uh, uh, reopening schools. Can you believe it? And everyone sits around and they can't believe it together. And it's like, OK, I know that. That's interesting and useful. But you know what would be really interesting and useful for me? What's the infection rate among kids? Why, for example, uh, is there a greater share of uh, children now in the positive uh, uh, testing category? They were they were 2% of positive cases in April. Now they're 8.8%, and it increases every two weeks. That's interesting. Um, no, that's not what we're going to get. What we're going to get is instead... You know, someone finds a way to write a headline of uh, children, uh, like a study author, uh, summarizes their data as being uh, there's a 40 percent spike in children infections over the past two weeks. Everyone runs with that and says children are just as likely to trans. And by everyone, I mean the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Wall Street Journal. I'm not like nut picking here some like uh, historically lousy newspapers. I'm talking about what should be the best. Um and they are not providing that kind of context. And they're going as quickly as possible to Donald Trump, whether or not he has anything to do with this. It's another source of frustration about this is that people are constantly trying to collapse this story into uh, whatever like political binary, but like data, even like monoculture so that um, whatever number you have is automatically the same in New York, in Phoenix, in anywhere else. Well, it's not, you know, like the, the, the greatest confounding thing. And I kind of love it on some level, uh, intellectually, but about the coronavirus is that, well, take all variables aside. You could have your mask variable. You could have, I've got an, a Yahoo red state governor here. I've got a Yahoo blue state governor or mayor over here. What is the biggest single, uh, variable that uh, determines kind of the, sh the, the shape of your curve and the intensity of the crisis. What is it? It's geography. It's nothing else but geography. You have the Northeast cluster acted like this on this timing. Yeah, the Southwest kind of, and not even a cluster. Sometimes it's just places that share uh, a similar uh, kind of, uh, you know, heat pattern and whatever else. Um, it's that more than anything else by so much. And so people want to have a moralistic argument about this policy choice. You know, DeSantis, how dare you? Or DeSantis is owed an apology. How about you owe all of us a motherfucking apology because you tried to politicize every single decision about this. You tried to illustrate all of your tut-tutting articles uh, by, you know, showing people actually socially distanced at a beach, which is what they fucking should be doing. Right. Um, you did that. You tried to make it a political thing when, in fact, um, everything is pointing towards this is much more of a geographic spread than anything else. Uh, that drives me nuts because the responses, particularly at the school level, need to be about the geographic and local differences much more than they need to be about the goddamn president of the United States. It's do you have a local infection rate of one percent or 17 percent? Some states still do have and cities still have 17 percent of uh, in terms of uh, a, a positive tests coming back. Don't open schools there. Bad idea. 
you know, if the ones that have 1% have had it for a long time, let's talk about how we can make those schools safe, how we can make testing. But it ain't any of that. It's just like, how soon can we get to the word Trump in a story that is about science that he may or may not have anything to do with? Yeah, everything now, and it's not just now, but nothing is local anymore. Everything is national. Like we, we kind of figured that out years ago, but there's no such thing as like local news anymore. There's no such thing as like local politics. Everything is national and on this grand scale and somehow must all be tied to the person that you don't like or the group of people that you don't like. And quite frankly, the only person or group of people that you can blame in the government right now is the CDC and the FDA for fucking this up back in March. Thanks, guys. Now we have to deal with this nonsense. And I, I, I sympathize with people who don't have the kind of time that you and I have or don't have the jobs that kind of require us to sit down and do all of this reading and thinking and people who try to go, especially if you try to go online and find information, which as bad as Twitter is, have you seen Facebook lately? Oh my God. I, I, I try to go on there. And apparently I, what I have learned is that China and Bill Gates are um, colluding to impregnate me with like 5G transmitters and, and Fauci is a lizard person. I'm like, okay, great. But do you have any data for me? And it's just, it's, it's, and it, it goes to this whole new kind of conspiracy theory rising thing. Now we, now we have a, a QAnon person going to Congress, I do think, who is apparently also a 9-11 truther, or at least a 9-11 Pentagon truther. And it's just like, what the hell happened? Like, it's it's gotten to the point where it's like you can't break through any of this. And I, I've seen people kind of speculate on this. And I, I think there might be a little bit of truth to this, that people want to focus on kind of the ephemera, kind of the, the surface stuff, because to go further than that, you're kind of looking into the abyss right now. And it's a little frightening. So everybody kind of wants to keep it surface you want to talk about trump or conspiracy theories and you don't really want to look at the hard data because that might be a little frightening yeah i mean the uh mask discourse is a pretty good example of this um you see a sense of relief among people it's palpable uh when they see the other side making total asses of themselves like trying to to you know um, B, I'm, I'm Mr. Macho guy. I don't believe in masks. Look at me. I'm not wearing a mask. Screw you. Um, that makes it so much easier because you just point and laugh and say, oh, it laugh, but also say you're killing people and it's awful and evil. Um, and I think the other side kind of can do that too at the insane, but in skiism, uh, that you see in New York as well as other places of like micromanaging, um, uh, social distance that people can have at outdoor beer gardens and, and, uh, and other just really super arbitrary rule. You can go on this aisle and target, but not that aisle and target. It's pretty easy to find that and when people do, it's like, ah, okay. They can, they can relax back in the cool bath of, um, not having to think. I mean, um, Václav Havel had a really great, uh, uh, line in one of his, communist era uh, works um, about, uh, you know, he's talking more in terms of the role of ideology than the role of like tribal partisanship, although those things often overlap quite a lot. But like uh, in his view, ideology 
is this great intellectual shortcut. Imagine all the time that you can save by not having to actually work through the math, to not actually have to think about things for yourself. You just have a ready-made answer. Those are the bad guys. Those are the good guys. Um, and you see this not just in coronavirus stuff. You see this everywhere in kind of the discourse. And it, it's, uh, uh, again, going back to the story today from Eliza Shapiro in the New York Times, it's basically, you know, Trump gave teachers unions an out. When this was, uh, when he first started inserting himself into the story in the beginning of July, um, my wife uh, uh, certainly said, uh, Michelle Goldberg said in a column in the New York Times, again, as someone who's like, we need to open schools. That's her position. Um, she was like, ah, damn it. Please don't, Mr. President. I might, I might even totally agree with you on the facts, but like, uh, although, you know, we're going to cut off funding for places that don't reopen is just idiotic. And as is a lot of stuff that comes out of his mouth, but his insertion into the debate makes it harder, at least for those of us who live in places like New York city, because everyone could say, see Trump and Betsy DeVos, who by the way is Satan. Um, they are, they believe X. So we believe anti X and now I no longer have to think about it. Um, it's very frustrating and it's in, as you alluded to earlier, it's not going to get better, uh, over the next three months. I mean, we've already seen how many people, uh, like make their overnight accommodations to Kamala Harris's long and indistinguished record, uh, as a prosecutor. So how many so-called police reforming, uh, criminal justice reforming civil libertarians are like, Oh, that's fine. We'll just get around to criticizing her later, but we just need to li to win the election. We can, you know, these these are all like negotiable. Whoa. Uh, so the amount of uh, of mental gymnastics people are prepared to go through, and then just the uh, I I'm here now, only picking up blunt hammers to smash people, um, and that's the only way I'm going to uh, understand um, policy debates. Uh, that is distressingly with us, and the only thing I can uh, encourage those who don't feel like that normally to do is to uh, drink uh, a lot <laughs> of, of alcohol um, and uh, try to keep your sense of humor uh, about you. And um, and depending on, you know, what you're trying to do with your life, uh, either stepping away from the social media machine or just leaning completely in and, and losing it. But I would pretty much recommend stepping away because it's infuriating and it's all around us. Yeah, I finally learned the the very good, good idea of making lists on Twitter. And then you can just put people in the list. And then that way you can make sure that you still see all the people you want to see and then occasionally dip into those other places and be like, Oh, yeah, that's why I don't follow you all the time. And that's like, th this new concept of doom scrolling. Like, do you know yeah. what this is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do I know? we all we all do it to some degree. I, I I try not to and try to tweet about music from 1989 uh, to distract us all. But uh, uh, yeah, no, everyone does it. Yeah, thank you for your service, sir. Yes, someone <laughs> someone uh, needs to do it. No, I I've I've, I've been um, I've been interested to see the uh, uh, extent of the kind of response and participation in all of that. Um, like no one really cares about this stuff too much. I mean, I guess people my age do because uh, it's, you know, we we're 21 back then. But um, and it, some genres were really emerging and the hip hop in particular was really interesting right around then. Um, but like, no, people want a distraction away from this stuff. They want to go down happy 
rabbit holes and not just be mad all the time on the internet. Um, uh, and I get it, and I'm happy to provide that service. Yeah, I think it's just kind of a fun distraction, and I won't even, I, I will not even insult you by telling you how old I was in 1989, because that would just nope. make this sad. <laughs> Thank I was you. not 21. <laughs> no, nope, not at all. <laughs> but kind of to bring this back to New York City and schooling, because obviously you guys are really the only major school district that's still openly flirting with the idea of doing some sort of in school schooling at some level of some sort and although everybody bitches about how new york city thinks it's the center of the world in some ways it kind of is because what happens in new york city especially with schooling is going to trickle out to other places so try to explain like this weird hybrid plan that you guys have that makes my brain itch because I don't understand how the logistics of this are even supposed to work for parents who work. I'm, I'm very confused. So as are we all, they're, they're still evolving it, but the basic idea is that all public school from kindergarten to high school um, are going to be open about half time. So in the case of uh, elementary school across the street where uh, my youngest will be going to kindergarten, that means um, twice a week, uh, it'll be like Monday and Thursday, um, and it'll be unclear whether it's like every Monday, every Thursday, or it's Monday, Thursday this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, next week. Um, and then one of the days in that two-week period, basically it'll be two days a week, three days a week, two days a week, three days a week. It'll be half time. Um, and then the rest is going to be a remote learning thing. Uh, what's confusing too. Um, although understandable and, 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 and proper, uh, in my view, is that there's a big chunk of parents who are like, nope, I want to be 100 percent remote. We even know people who are like moving in the in-laws within with the in-laws in Alabama and still participating 100 percent remote to their uh, school here. Um, so that's kind of an interesting way of, of looking at things, um, or at least temporarily like that. So and, and there's also, you know, a cohort of teachers who want to be. 100% remote, uh, and I get that too. Uh, they have uh, they have uh, concerns that are valid and should be uh, paid heed to. So, what's unclear is because they're still like working on it. Is like okay, so uh, our daughter will presumably have the same teacher in the in-person days, but in, in the remote days, it'll be a different teacher. Um, so that's going to be kind of difficult to coordinate. Um, uh, Lord knows how they're going to do that in like the middle school level where you have a, a variety of teachers, but yeah, it's basically, um, uh, halftime schooling. And then on the days when, um, you're not in school, they're going to have some amount of, you know, zoom classwork and things like that. But, um, especially at our elementary school, they very much anticipate that, uh, parents are going to be potting up. Um, and they, they encourage it, which I think is cool. Um, so, and they're going to try to design the remote learning experience with that in mind. Um, so uh, we will see, uh, I don't know yet how it's going to work and who we're going to do it with, uh, uh, with us. And like, you know, do you hire a tutor or you just have a parent say, okay, you know, once a week or once every two weeks, I'm going to be a school teacher for, you know, six, uh, seven hours. Um, which is probably how we'll end up doing it. Um, Going to get a lot of interesting reading in the math class, uh, the kindergarten <laughs> math class. 
hey kids <laughs> Let's hear the story of John Brown. Uh, no, uh, but, but uh, uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, confusing. Especially confusing is the kind of protocols of the what if uh, uh, they there's a positive test case. So I th- I think right now the what if is that class gets shut down um, at least for 24 hours. Maybe it's for two weeks. I forget exactly which. Um, but uh, you know there's supposed to be a, some level of contact tracing. But if that testing is not being turned around any faster than, you know, a week, which is kind of where it's at in New York, I don't see how any of this can work unless everyone just magically doesn't get infected. And in fact, and this is another criticism that I have over so many of these scare stories in advance of uh, of the school year is that, you know, the daycares have been open in New York all summer. Where are the outbreaks? Well, that's a that sounds like a big data set. Uh, and you will see in these articles the same like two or three cases every time. Like there was the place in Georgia that had a big outbreak. You read the fine print on it and it's like, OK. And they were singing and yelling all the time. And the kids expressly didn't. They're doing that indoors and they didn't wear masks. Uh, 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 no. Yeah. The parents didn't wear masks. The teachers. It was, the whole thing's uh, all like uh, messed up. Or there's the one case in Texas. Um and then on a system-wide uh, uh, level, everyone points to the case of Israel, which opened up its schools, I think, back in May. Um, and that coincided with uh, outbreaks, some of which was school-led. And that's like the biggest nightmare case that people point to. Um, and that's interesting. It does have some outlier effects. You know, instead of having 25 kids to a class, they had 40. <laughs> uh, they uh, closed the windows everywhere. Uh, there's lots of a- aspects of it which were unusual and you, you don't see repeated in Western Europe. Um, but, uh, you know, it's possible, uh, like when you, when you actually do a lot of work, you can see people, you can find the people who've been, um, out there trying to collect information from, uh, day camps and child daycares all over the place this summer. And it's mostly not so bad. So hopefully knock on wood, that continues to translate into, we don't have a lot of these cases, but it's just, you know, it's a system with 1.1 million kids in it. Um, I would presume something like half of them are ever going to show up in, in a class this year. It's going to be a huge drop off. Um, but uh, what, which is on some level good because that means classes will be emptier and they can uh, have better social distancing. Um, but uh, I shudder to imagine how they're going to react when uh, a kid, a parent or whoever uh, tests positive. Well, we've already had one case of that in Georgia, the the infamous school hall photo school yeah yeah they they had an outbreak they had to shut down for two days so we've made it to week two and we already have one high school that had to shut down and this is just for the ones there's not a lot of districts around here that have gone completely traditional and usually the only places i've seen it are like the far northern suburbs where it's not as dense but still obviously pretty dense as you can tell by the picture we've had one school have to shut down completely. Another school shut down for two days and we've made it into week two. And this is where, I mean, and I, I can see on like a high level where there's going to be a lot of hopefully really interesting conversations happening this year around school choice, around alternate education. But on like a more like granular day-to-day level, the schools that open up in some capacity 
I can see them eventually having to go completely online because you can't have that kind of situation where you're opening and closing, opening, closing, opening, closing. Eventually parents are going to be like, I can't do this. Like I can't keep trying to make arrangements for my kid because I don't know when the school is going to be open or shut. So I'm curious to see how long those districts that actually open up full traditional, full school, obviously, and, and you pointed this out in your piece, that the schools that have done this and done this successfully have some very big ifs attached to them, including doing social distancing, requiring students to wear masks, which by and large is not happening here in schools that are going open. So I, I don't see this situation lasting all that long before everybody goes completely online. Yeah, the, the, um, I think that's the single best uh, case for having the elementary schools in particular in New York City um, start a half time instead of full time. I would like to see them go full time because I think that the risks are really small. Um, the amount of certainty that you can uh, put into life planning um, would be just really great uh, for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, kids been going, as I mentioned, five days a week to daycare and it's fine. It's cool. Um, so I would like that. But the argument for it is that just because, you know, and this is New York we're talking about, um, they're going to screw it up. Like anything that the government touches in the city, in the state, it's bad. Um, and so when they have to figure out uh, and react to and freak out about uh, the first positive case, the first outbreak anywhere, it's going to be, um, you know, a kind of a draconian overreach in this direction or that direction. So if you do it part time, people will have certain muscles uh, developed, you know, like, uh, we, you know, if we have a, uh, a halftime pod uh, uh, with other parents, you know, that halftime can go to full time probably without uh, too much um, uh, uh, logistical kind of organizing. But if you went from, you know, the extreme in perhaps quotation marks of, uh, of being open full time to, oh, crap, we got to close everything. Uh, that makes it more difficult and also I think more like psychologically bruising. Um, but uh, and, and uh, you know, that's it's also, though, I wonder, I mean, Georgia and, and Sunbelt states and southern states are, you know, they're uh, last I looked, um, you know, even though the, uh, the rates are going down, there's still a hell of a lot more community spread than there is here. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, there's a greater reason to not open schools to begin with. Um, but I wonder in places where that kind of mimic or are close to New York's happily low rates, uh, whether or not the people are falling in love with catastrophizing the problem. Um, again, going back to the incentives that people have to keep it as a problem and not as a solution. It's really easy. If anyone... Oh, let's see. How can I put this? If anyone has recently gone through the um, joys of kind of moving an elderly parent away from their traditional family home to uh, their the new chapter in their life, they can know that problems can be stack on top of one another and things can be delayed pretty easily just because of the size of the problem. That's a nice way of me of putting this. Uh, did I mention I'm flying to California tomorrow? Um, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's really easy to say, oh, but my God, what about this? And we hadn't think about this and we don't have this. We don't have this thing here. So let's just keep things closed. Um, 
I'm afraid that uh, and sometimes that is an elegant solution. So I'm arguing against myself a little bit here. But I worry that in some places, particularly um, in places that are going to be governed more by uh, uh, more powerful uh, teachers unions and more, um, you know, animatedly anti-Trump kind of uh, political environments, um, I worry that they can catastrophize this to death and we'll just have schools not be open for a year. Uh, that's a bad, bad, bad outcome. That's a bad outcome. It's going to really affect the way that sh cities are shaped um, uh, and it's going to uh, uh, affect the mental health of scores of millions of people in this country. That's not optimal. So, um, you know, I, it's why I'm really preaching the know your local stats uh, line and like and be adaptable based on actual information and try to to find that information and in, in a good faith and and you know lead by parents uh as much as possible um which is very very difficult to do because i mean have you met these people but uh but uh, it 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 has to happen um because really one month from now we could be having like a national nervous breakdown that uh you know half of the country will be kind of blissfully unaware about because they're not in the world of kids but everyone, it's going to, it, it, everyone will notice somewhat. It'd be just like, you know, you're walking around and half the people are zombies about ready to eat your brains. That's how significant it's going to be. So it's a, it's a damned pressing issue. And just like testing to begin with, which is overlaps with this question or directly affects it. Um, but, you know, the, the testing problem in the rollout of coronavirus in this country is the original sin and continues to be. And, you know, if we're talking about trillions of dollars for whatever the hell coming out of Washington and we still haven't fixed testing, um, man, that is infuriating. That's tough. That's tough to, to stomach. And it it uh, it uh, boggles the mind that people are not bending a huge amount of their focus uh, on solving that problem. That is a problem and it needs to be solved. The testing problem and also what to do with the schools and how to do it like Boy, that matters so much more than painting another Black Lives Matter mural out in front of the Trump Tower, as Bill de Blasio loves to do. Like, no, dude, the, you got a job. We've got to fix this thing right now. So um, hopefully he's feeling some of that pressure because there's a lot of constituents who otherwise are with him on all of his stupid garbage. Um, but they're pissed right now and they don't want to go uh, have another spring uh, happen this fall. Which is what I'm afraid is going to happen because I do think that at least for this school year, the traditional schooling is not going to happen. Like even in the places that are trying it, it's not going to last and everybody's going to have to figure this out. And there could be some good outcomes to come of this, but on a logistic level, it's going to be a very, very rough school year because... I mean, obviously, if you do have a situation where you start having outbreaks in school, I mean, I can already, you already know what's going to happen. They're just going to shut them down. Like, that's that's the, the quote-unquote safe solution. And whenever you're talking about anything involving the kids, we have to go with the safest solution, which is just going to be, well, shut it all down again, because that's what governments seem to do now. And I'm still not entirely sure that we're not going to get a second wave of lockdowns, although we've made it to August without them, and I'm feeling... Somewhat more confident, but not entirely. So, I mean, I, I don't know. This is going to be rough. It's going gonna, it's gonna to suck for every parent in the United States. And I do think that this is really going to be like the big issue 
for the next couple of months because it affects so many people in the country. And it's like it, it can't not be the biggest issue. Yeah. And um, it will be really interesting to see how uh, I mean, just I think today's the first day that there's like a um, actual kind of uh, political fight over coronavirus in the presidential campaign. Now that we know the Democratic ticket is they're like, OK, mandatory masks. And Trump's all, are you kidding? Not mandatory masks. Okay, so like now we're having politics about the coronavirus in the presidential campaign. So I can only imagine that is immediately going to get uh, to some stuff on the Democratic side, um, which is a party on the national level that has gone from keeping teachers unions at arm's length policy wise, even while accepting all their money to doing their bidding. Um, And that's a new change. you know, uh, Barack Obama hired Arne Duncan from Chicago, who is a charter school enthusiast um, and who instituted race to the top, which was not, you know, one tenth as good or uh, far reaching as proponents uh, said it was. But at least it nodded in the direction of, hey, look, you should uh, come up with some ways to to better deliver educational goods to students, you local governments. And if that's charter school and some other kind of experimentation, great. Um I'd like to see that just happen on the local level at the federal government, but, you know, and libertarian throat clear here. But uh, that's done. You know, when Hillary Clinton ran in 2016, um, it just was, uh, you know, the, the our problem with, with public education is that we've cut the funding so much to teachers. It's like, OK, so you're not even pretending um, to like present any of this honestly. And she was going after charters. There was a big early on in the uh, Democratic primary this time around. There was a big, I think, teachers union uh, supported conference, maybe down in Texas somewhere where everyone came up uh, and uh, out competed one another for saying that charters were the root of all evil. De Blasio, unsurprisingly, was the worst uh, there. I think it was in July of last year in the the brief minute or two he thought he was running for president. Um, So the center of gravity has has shifted so that Democrats are instinctively anti-charter. Um, and, uh, and like just throw money at the problem and otherwise being more beholden to unions. And if the national unions are like, we got to keep these things closed forever, but also have all the money, um, at a time when parents are like, I'm paying taxes, I'm paying for whatever, you know, replacement solution here. Uh, I'm being made to feel guilty and racist no matter what I do. Cause that's guaranteed. Um, And now you're telling me that uh, that we need to, you know, uh, give these school districts more while they teach less. I might start to get a little bit angry about all of that. So, um, you know, I predict that uh, that Biden and Harris will be pretty terrible on this issue, at least pretty obsequious to unions and that unions do do not traditionally have um, my exact interests at heart when making uh, education policy. Um, uh, and you know, uh, Trump is going to blurt whatever he's going to blurt, but Betsy DeVos has been active in education reform her whole life, um, and has some thoughts about all of that. So I'm much more likely to be on their side on that issue. I, I'm not the media, the modal voter at all. Um, but you're right. Uh, this will be, this will totally be a political issue, a life issue for so many people. Like there's so much I don't care about anymore. At all. Can't even bother to hear a second of it. Um, Not this. I'm paying a lot of attention to this. 
because you have to, because you have two kids and you got to figure out what am I supposed to be doing with my spawn? Like, what are they doing? What are, what are we supposed to be doing? But I do think that this situation is going to force a lot of really interesting conversations over the next six to 12 months, especially when you are putting parents in a position where, like you said, you are still paying your property taxes. You're still paying your local taxes. You're also dipping in your own pocket to pay for whatever alternative education that you have to pay for for your child because you can't just leave children at home alone. I've been told the government frowns upon that sort of thing. So I, I'm thinking there's going to start being a little more discussion from parents about what exactly is it that I'm paying for versus what am I getting and is this worth it to me? Or is this money being well spent? Why am I still paying all of this money for my kid to go to school online, like you're not going to a building and you're not getting any of those kind of like ancillary things that are supposed to come from going to school. So why am I paying for this? And that conversation I think is also going to trickle up from like the K-12 situation up to secondary education, especially if universities don't go back to like in school teaching anytime in the near future you have to have that conversation again because that's how colleges have built themselves as being this experience and you go there and you do all the wonderful things and look at the dorms and look at all the activities and that's why you pay all this money. Well, if you're not going to the dorms and doing all the activities, well, what the hell am I paying for? I have uh, been a long time since I've seen so much normie interest in something that uh, libertarians and education reformers have been talking about for a generation, which is uh, backpack funding, or just let the let public education money travel wherever the kid goes and put it there. Um, that's better way of doing it than giving a teaching monopoly to a um, a public union uh, controlled entity that will have its own interests, uh, maybe more at heart, and try to uh, treat their revenue stream as like a, a, a thing to zealously uh, protect. Um, people like that, you know, I, I'm going to have to try to figure out what to do half the time for my five-year-old. Um, that figuring it out is going to involve money and we are paying uh, the school system exactly for why. Um, and, and there's another element that's, I think, going to be really different in the fall than it was in the spring, which is, not just that we've gone through it, but what we went through before was a, it was just a catastrophe. It was a calamity um, in terms of like, okay, this, this virus seems to be getting bad. It seems to be getting bad. It seems, holy shit. And the country shut down, um, you know? Uh, and so that's different than having something that's kind of predictable. You've kind of been there and also you kind of plan for it a little bit more. So uh, I, I certainly you know, uh, of the parental cohort that after spring, it's like, well, you know what? I'm really never going to do homeschooling. <laughs> Before I was like, ah, you know, I'm probably too busy. There's reasons I wouldn't want to do it. I like the idea of my kid going to school um, and all of that. But after having experienced the Zoom horror and just the awfulness of everything um, and how tough that uh, spring was, it's like, oh, hell no. But I think that changes in the fall because parents are, are inventing and cobbling together their own thing. It's going to be much better done. I would hope to God that the quality of the remote learning from the school itself will be better. And I and I presume it will be. They're trying hard to figure out how to do 
that better than they did before. It was really rough on my oldest daughter because the way they assigned homework uh, sort of made it into this gigantic uh, pile that she felt uh, always uh, just a mountain she couldn't quite climb and it made her very stressed out for a long time. So I presume they're going to do a lot of that better. Um, but uh, the consumer experience, including the uh, the parental-led consumer experience, is going to look a lot different. And so people are going to have a much different view towards alternative education uh, solutions um, than they did before. And boy, if they start like doing some follow-up questions, that's going to be super interesting. I think I think that uh, there's no way two years from now um, public education looks like it did last fall. There's just no way. Uh, and there's no way that, uh, college education, I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, think about, uh, the financial crisis of, uh, 2007, eight, nine, um, and response thereof. Um, it was huge. It was a big, big event, uh, in your life in a lot of people's lives. And, uh, it spawned two different political movements of significance may have petered out by now, uh, Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street, but like they uh, impacted things for a while. And some of the spirit remains in different forms. Um, well, okay, we've had a financial or economic crisis that's larger by every measure, in addition to a pandemic that's killed, you know, between 160 and 200,000 people, depending on how you measure this stuff, uh, ongoing. Um, and just a bunch of other calamity besides. And then at, after four years of uh, an insane presidency, um, I, this is big. I, I can't, I, I don't think we can process how much bigger all of this is, um, as something that just broadsided, uh, American life. So yeah, I think the, I think, uh, education as we know, it does just comes out looking different. Um, it's never going to go back to, um, exactly what it was. Uh, and you know, legacy systems are going to have to be nimble, uh, or else they're just going to be like trying to zealously, uh, guard the size of their pie, um, while the tax base flees. And that's, that's a recipe for, uh, a very bad, uh, civic dysfunction and governing dysfunction. Um, so, uh, who knows how big it's going to be, but I, but I think it's going to be pretty big. Yeah, I don't see how after all this, you kind of put the genie back in the bottle as far as education is concerned. And I was talking to your somewhat colleague, sort of Reason Foundation, Corey DeAngelis yesterday. Yeah. And he actually pointed out that d despite your personal experience and feelings about homeschooling, interest in homeschooling nationwide has skyrocketed since March. A lot of people are looking at this and being like, well... We're probably going to have to pivot this year because there's not going to be traditional schooling. And I wonder if once you do like a whole school year of alternate education and you realize, hey, perhaps my kid performs better under these circumstances than traditional schooling, there's going to be an expectation of, well, if we did it for this one school year, why can't we just keep doing this for forever? Kind yeah. of the same same way we get these conversations about the work from home movement, like people are like, well, if we did this for five months, why don't we just keep on doing it? Yeah. Um, it just like, you know, the people who leave the cities to spend a, 
uh, a season, uh, you know, in the Hudson Valley or in Europe or in uh, at grandma's or whatever and can work from home and get paid a similar amount of money and haven't lost their job. There's going to be a whole lot of like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> what was I thinking paying that rent? Uh, uh, the, uh, especially, you know, if, if these, uh, the crime and uh, murder and shooting, uh, spikes in places like New York city continues to go up and the kind of visible, uh, degradation of the city or at least certain neighborhoods, uh, happens, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of people uh, wondering why not do the uh, temporary thing on a permanent basis. And it's just that's it's going to be such most things happen in slow motion. This is fast motion. Uh, this is a big, big hit. Yeah. And it's one of those things, too, that humans kind of once they get into a certain rhythm of doing things and you do something for six months, a year, you say, oh, I like this. I just keep doing this for forever. How about I just move to the Hudson Valley permanently and then I just don't have to deal with New York anymore because I don't have to. So silver linings of COVID as few as there are is for me, I think there is going to be a lot of conversation about how we handle education in the United States and how we handle work in the United States and how maybe we could do this in better ways that is better for people's happiness, their stress level, their well-being in ways that I think they, they don't go back to the old normal. Like, I know everybody hates the term new normal, but I think we're entering a new normal and a lot of it's bad. I, I will admit that a lot of it really fucking sucks, but some of it might actually be pretty good. I just uh, I want to fast forward to CBGB's. Basically, I want to I want to get over the uh, dis decay, despair, dysfunction and the huge crime. And I want to go straight to the good art. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure it's going to happen like that. I mean, I'm betting on New York. I buy on the dips. I think one of the things that I've learned about myself during this is um, something that probably people would have assumed about me from the outside. But I didn't really know about myself uh, is how much I need the. Um, uh, social interaction of a big city. And that doesn't mean necessarily talking to anybody. It means actually just walking down a busy street um, where there's a lot of commerce and transactions happening and bars and people chattering and what uh, just like I, I need to have that thrum uh, around me. And, uh, and when it wasn't there, um, I was depressed and I'm not a depressive person at all. I just like, there was this, I felt its absence. And so I wonder um, if the, that sense of absence will be uh, or the need to refill that up will be a counterweight to what you're saying, which is that people are going to get used to the new normal and say, well, screw it. I'm going to live, you know, in the uh, in the research triangle in the Carolinas. That's going to, you know, it's beautiful, smaller towns um, that still have smart people. And it's great fun. Um, I think people are going to want to come back in the cities. But the 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 terms of the uh, negotiation are going to be much, much different. Like some markets are going to have to clear. It's going to be a different type of person who's coming in. The political structures are going to have to probably break apart and reformat um, uh, just because they you phys physically can't uh, sustain it when a, a tax base flees. And that's what's happening right now here um, and in plenty of other places, too. So it's going to, you know, Things, prices are going to change. Things are going to change. 
but I think the human need for that amount of interaction and excitement um, is will remain because there's something intrinsic. There's always going to be a subset of the population who is uh, who needs that, wants that, and seeks the connections that you can have when people are piled up on top of each other. Um, you know, is that two years? Is that five, ten, twenty? Um, who knows? Um, and uh, and I am worried about the uh, the downfall the decline in the intervening time, but at the same time, totally betting on it. Um, you know, betting on New York. If I had money, I'd buy something, um, uh, besides a car, which I already bought. But, uh, uh, uh it's, uh, it's, it, it, it also, you know, these kinds of things are, are kind of emotional. You know, we went outside and banged the pots and pans for every night at seven o'clock for what, four months, five months, something like that. Um, thank God we don't. Cause that's a sign that like, we're not in that, sense of crisis. But when you go through that forging experience with, uh, people and with the city and with the neighborhood, like you want to, you want to stick with them. Like we just went through this. Let's, let's, uh, let's be part of, uh, coming back from it too. Um, so I, I, as much as I bitch constantly about the political leadership and the insane educational establishment in this city and they deserve all of it and twice as much besides, uh, I also, rooting for it um I, I i think we might be able to get it right and maybe part of that's even going to be hey we can reopen schools what's wrong with you people you should uh, you should try to figure out a way to do that too once it is safe uh infection wise in your area and maybe if you can make it to reopening schools maybe you guys can make it around to reopening bars and letting people like me from cootie states into your city because technically speaking i'm not supposed to be allowed to go to new york city right now but not that there's really anything that could stop me but maybe maybe if you guys can get the school right maybe you can start opening back up writ large again and and that's one reason why i do support the idea especially of new york city since it does seem like you guys have flatten the curve or crush the curve or whatever the hell we're supposed to be doing with the curve. It seems like you guys did it. So maybe now we can start opening back up and maybe getting back to something closer to a normal amount of people doing a normal amount of things in New York. Well, you got to kill off all your olds first oh, okay. as New York did, you know, clean out the nursing homes. No, it's terrible. Like the amount of suffering that happened here is, is just tremendous. And, and, uh, and awful and hopefully other places don't go through it. And in fact, there's reason to believe they won't even, uh, as they peak at various times because we're getting better at treating it. We're learning lessons from before. Um, and possibly the regional strains are, are have different, uh, levels of lethality. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, my, I, a thing I've been saying from the beginning of all of this is that the New York centric view of, uh, of media in this country has really done us a disservice during this pandemic because um as you know so much media is created here much more so than 10 years ago um and is based here that people and, and people lose the ability to recognize the difference between a local and a national story and they want to nationalize it because it makes it easy it's either about the bad man or uh about the the good man fighting the bad people and um, and so because of that, I think a lot of places um, kind of uh, 
shut down too fast, locked down too quickly um, because they sort of assumed or treated their populations as if what was happening to them infection wise was the same as New York City. It just wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. And right now it isn't. It isn't. And so if you've had people who've been on various forms of quarantine and lockdown for the last six months and now the rate goes up, those are some bombed out people. Uh, my my California peeps right now are uh, uh, are uh, very very seriously depressed because they've been in different uh, stages of lockdown since March. They were like pulling surfers out of the water in Malibu in March, and uh, and they're kind of having to re crack down now that the rates had gone up this past month, and they're tired. And I think part of that fatigue comes from sadly assuming that whatever's happening in New York is happening there and it wasn't. Um, so I hope that that doesn't screw things up with responses going forward and that most people can safely flatten and then get back to regular business. I can tell you just, you know, whether it's the daycare for the five-year-old or just having probably 80 to 85% of my neighborhoods just back up and running. Um, you know, the, they built a whole bunch of outdoor capacity at all the bars and rest, restaurants. So the streets are pretty damn lively. Um, all the stores that I care about for the most part have opened. Some have closed forever, which is sad. But, um, you know, you walk around and you wouldn't really think that there's a pandemic except for the mask wearing. And that's great. Um, so I hope to see that uh, flower more in the future. Um, but I worry that uh, um, even that some places where that shouldn't be opening up too fast are going to be looking at New York and saying, Hey, look, they, they beat it. So let's like, let's, let's have business as usual. It's like, nah, dude, you can wear the mask for a season or two, would you? Like, it's fine. Good. It's, it's better that way. Um, so that's my hope. Well, on that note, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this one up. So go ahead and tell people where they can find you as if they don't already know this anyway, but go ahead and let them know. Uh, find me at Matt Welch on the Twitter machine uh, and go to reason.com for uh, work we do there. And uh, the fifth column is a podcast that I co-host with Camille Foster and Michael Moynihan that uh, exists in the world, I think, at We The Fifth, spelled out on Twitter. But uh, you can find it in places near you. But just all that's linked at Matt Welch on my Twitter page. All right. Well, thanks for sitting down and talking with me, Matt. Thank you, Jen. Always a pleasure. Thanks. So that was my conversation with Matt about his experiences up in New York City, trying to figure out what exactly is supposed to be going on with his children and trying to find data points to understand the risk for his children and kind of a lot of other stuff along the way too. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.